Well, I think the main reason we invited you here was to give us an explanation of Plato. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry, but it, it doesn't go away. This episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology, and anything else we're interested in. We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas. And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And yes, that's a real place. Tyler, we are living in the midst of a pandemic, and so I have a very important question for you. If a vaccine for COVID came out tomorrow, would you be the first in line to take it? I think that I would. I think that, I don't know if it's being cavalier or optimistic, hopeful, but I, th- I think that I would be first in line. How about you? Oof. I get worried when we rush trials. I mean, this one's so important. So hopefully they're taking all the precautions, but there is this long history of testing things out on people before we really know that they work. And that makes me a little bit nervous. So I get why people would be hesitant if they don't trust their politicians, if they don't trust the institutions that regulate how we know that these kinds of vaccines are safe. And so if we don't trust that, it's no wonder that people are wary, at least to be first. Maybe I'll let you be first, give it a few days, see how it goes, and then I might be a little bit more apt to get in line. It sounds like a great plan. Okay, well, we'll agree on that then. My pleasure to introduce and welcome our guest today, Mark Naven, Department of Philosophy's chair at Oakland University. In addition to that, he also is a a lecturer in the Foundational Medical Sciences program at Oakland University's medical school. Did I get all that right, Mark? It's great. Thanks, Tyler. So, Mark, we ask all of our guests this. Do you consider yourself a bioethicist? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, at least in the broadest sense of the term, that I'm interested in ethical issues as arrive in questions about how we live, which is to say that maybe everyone everyone who does ethics is a bioethicist. But in particular, I, I work in issues both in clinical medicine, communication with doctors and nurses and patients, but also questions about medicine and healthcare in society, so public health ethics as well. Mark, tell us a little bit about your journey to this point. What got you interested in bioethics? Were there people who were kind of mentors? Were there topics that interested you? How did you get here? Sure. My bachelor's, master's, and PhD are all in philosophy, and I was always interested in ethics topics and, and mostly ethics and society topics, so political philosophy questions about what we owe to each other as citizens, what our rights are, how to best organize our shared life together, and was working properly in political philosophy uh, until a few years into my first academic position, or my only one here at Oakland, and stumbled across some questions about immunization policy, about vaccine refusers, and what the government was doing, and maybe what they should be doing, that got me thinking about bioethics topics, and, and frankly, a lot of things have spun out from there, from thinking both about narrowly about immunization policy, but more broadly about political philosophy and public health, but also about clinical ethics uh, and pediatric ethics. 
So Mark, we're really interested in this work that you do on vaccines and people who are vaccine hesitant and maybe even what some people would call anti-vaxxers. I think, and I don't know, and you can correct me, that is not the preferred term by people who take that stance. So I'd love to hear what is your research about and what have you learned about folks who don't get vaccines or don't want to vaccinate their children and why this is such a huge debate in ethics right now? Well, it's trivial to say, but but it's worth repeating that everything interesting is more complicated than it first seems to be. And so one thing that fascinates me about vaccine refusers uh, or vaccine hesitancy more generally is that it's more heterogeneous, it's more diverse, and it's far more interesting from a kind of ethical point of view, but also from a point of view of, of sort of social science and science communication than it appears to be. We don't do ourselves any favors when we talk about these people uh, as being a sort of monolithic group of of selfish or stupid individuals, which is common. Or if we just think that, well, the problem is one of insufficient information, there's a deficit of knowledge, and all we need to do is shove facts down people's throats, and then we'll solve things. Questions about vaccine hesitancy and refusal, when we start to, to answer them, we reveal deeper problems about uh, trust in public institutions, about people's making identities for themselves through personalized forms of parenting and choice in a a capitalist consumer society, different ways of thinking about social solidarity and the sort of ethics of parenting, and sort of breakdowns in relationships between medical institutions and people on the ground, Uh, and frankly, ways in which reasonable forms of making your own way in life and sort of alternative lifestyles can sort of pick up unreasonable attributes. So one thing that really fascinates me about vaccine refusing community, and they're very diverse, but that many of them are associated with really good things. These are parents who are investing a lot of resources in their children. They're often doing breastfeeding, and they're committed to lots of exercise and and you know, not eating foods with a lot of preservatives and a lot of intimate relationship time. And it's very striking to me the ways in which vaccine refusal as a practice can, be, can become attached to these valued social identities that people cultivate. So my engagement is to think through some of the sort of ethics stuff, some of the sort of community formation stuff. And and I do it both as a philosopher, but I've been really fortunate to partner with people with greater expertise in social science forms of research to do both bigger data quantitative work uh, involving both immunization databases, but also survey work. Uh, I've also done some projects that involve interviews and focus groups around some of these issues. That's really helped me further focus on the kinds of questions that interest me. Mark, those are really easy questions, and I'm really surprised you haven't figured those out yet. So how do, you even, how do you even begin to answer some of these questions? What's your approach? A lot of the things that you're talking about are like huge societal, political philosophy type questions, right? What's like the doorway in? What, do you, what are you even kind of doing? Well, I mean, I think this is a problem that faces every researcher, right? Every problem that's interesting is really big and complicated, and we take our little pieces where they are. But some of the things that are helpful for me to frame the, this complexity is first to think, you know, this is nothing new. And in fact, our responses to contemporary vaccine hesitancy and refusal are clouded by the sort of relative political stability and high levels of public trust we've had in the post-World War II era, that in fact, mass skepticism about vaccination was the norm from the the sort of at least mid-19th century until uh, the early parts of the 20th century. It was only the mass fabricated patriotism of World War I and the compulsory coercive forms of voluntarism group activity that came out of the conscription movements of World War I and the cult of science and medicine that that comes, again, through that period 
and sort of explodes literally, right, with the atomic age at World War II, that we have this sort of mass buy-in for vaccination as a social practice. I actually think we're regressing to a kind of mean of skepticism about vaccination, because frankly, vaccination is something you should be skeptical of. It's a weird thing to put antigens into the bodies of healthy people. Now, I do it. I, I, my kids are fully vaccinated according to the schedule. I'm fully vaccinated. I even went and got the, the MMRs again because my titers were low. I love vaccines. But every generation has to convince themselves that this very counterintuitive practice is something we really ought to do. And we've taken for granted that our social institutions were lining people up to do this for a very long time. But uh, we shouldn't be taking that for granted. And I think we see more broadly in our society, we've taken a lot of things for granted that we shouldn't. And each generation has to reinvest in our institutions, especially around trust in authorities uh, that speak for science and for medicine. But come on, Mark, it is a weird concept unless you think about it for five minutes. And I think you could reason your way into it. Man, we wiped out diseases. There were diseases that plagued the American landscape for so long that we basically have wiped out, except that they're coming back because these people right, won't get their vaccines. How is that not just a simple story? Why isn't the answer just to force people to get vaccines? Let's start with the simple story and then the forcing. But why is it not simple? So first off, by far the most refused vaccine in America is for chickenpox. And the number one reason why people refuse it is they had it and it was not a big deal. And the truth is that chickenpox is not a big deal for almost everyone who gets it. Now, it's true, prior to the mass introduction of routine childhood varicella, chickenpox vaccine in the 1990s, about 100 kids a year died of chickenpox. And, you know, thousands were hospitalized. And that's bad. It's horrible. I'm glad we have chickenpox vaccine. All my kids got it. But for, for context, thousands of kids die each year from handguns. Thousands of kids die each year in car accidents. I think it's nearly 1,000 die in backyard pool drownings every year. This was not like a top killer of kids. And so there are reasonable questions about whether or not these kind of interventions ought to matter. I think they're justified, but I think parents who are refusing them are reflecting on their own way of life that seemed to work out well for them. Again, I'm not saying that's justified. My kid's grandparents, for example, might say, well, we didn't wear helmets when we were kids and riding bikes and we turned out fine. They're forgetting you know, their relatives and friends who didn't wear helmets and didn't turn out fine. Survivor bias is a real thing. But at the same time, I think there's been a massive change. If you look at the vaccine schedule, as of 30 years ago, there were only four vaccines on that schedule. It was a very different schedule. If you look at it now, it's, it's, it's over a dozen and it's dozens and dozens of doses. It's very intimidating. The number of vaccines that kids get at a two month and four month visit can be overwhelming. And, and as a parent, kind of traumatic to have to hold my screaming infant down, who's a healthy screaming infant and give them the shots. Look, Vaccination is amazing. All my kids are vaccinated. I want us to get kids vaccinated, but from a kind of way of life, historical perspective, from a sort of parental emotional perspective, I think it is very understandable that some people are refusing some vaccines or wanting to space them out. By far, the most common form of vaccine refusal is an alternative schedule, people spreading them out. There's no evidence that that's a safer schedule. In fact, the only evidence we have is that the current recommended schedule is safe, but it's not a crazy thing to think, well, I'd rather my kids get fewer vaccines at a time. For the record, I have an infant and he did not scream during his vaccines. I was very proud. World's best mom. Best mom. That's right. I think it's because of my parenting. No, I'm just kidding. He did cry. It was awful. And he got a fever and then he didn't, he got off his sleep schedule. Oof. It is a mess. Okay. I hear you. 
I'm not sure chickenpox is the best example because, like you said, not that many people die of chickenpox. And most of us are old enough to have just had chickenpox. But come on, there's other things. There's, what, smallpox and measles and all sorts of good vaccines. Well, let's talk about polio. Polio is a really rough one because we are so close to eradicating polio that more people are dying from polio vaccine than from polio right now. Right Now, it's largely in countries that don't have good sanitation because you get viral shedding in feces. And so people who are in contact with feces of people recently vaccinated against polio can't actually get vaccine-induced polio in, in those countries. Like They're dying from polio. And these are really hard and tricky questions. Right? The risks of Americans who are unvaccinated against polio of getting polio is infinitesimally small. It's far, far more likely they're going to die in a car accident. And we don't shame people for riding in cars. Now, again, I'm pro-polio vaccine. I would love everyone to get pol- the polio vaccine so we can eradicate the dang thing. But I actually think when we cash it out in terms of your risk, you can't actually make really good arguments that you are radically reducing risks for individual people who refuse vaccines. You need a sort of political argument or a solidarity argument or a multi-generational kind of public projects argument to, to really defend why we ought to care about vaccination. But as an individual parent, you're just going to make the argument to me that it's what's best for my kid. I think often those arguments are pretty weak for some vaccines. So it seems like your work is also both descriptive and normative as well. And what I mean by that is that you're trying to figure out and trying to understand what's going on with this issue. But then are you also going ahead and making normative claims about here are recommendations to, to change the policy, to change the education? Do you go that direction as well? Exactly. Thank you for noting that connection. Some populations that I've looked at have to do with how we enforce vaccine requirements. And in particular, who we make enforce the vaccine requirements. For example, I did a series of interviews with a a few dozen public health nurses across Michigan who have to provide state mandated education to parents who refuse vaccines because you can still send your unvaccinated kids to school in Michigan. Uh, You can get an exemption or sometimes called a waiver from the vaccine requirements if you attend this education session. So they give the public health nurses a chance to convince them. I'm pro this kind of mandate, but I also wanted to know what the burdens were, what the costs were for these public health nurses of having hour after hour, day after day of these experiences with these parents. I was also interested whether they work. And the answer is yes, they work, but not because the nurses change anybody's mind. They work because it's such a pain in the butt to go to these sessions that some small percentage of refusers, about a third, will rather get vaccinated than go to the session. That's an interesting kind of finding when you're thinking through the mandate. I'm in the middle of a, a project looking at the role of school secretaries in enforcing vaccine mandates. So we say, oh, let's make the kids get vaccinated to go to school. And when you say that, we're like, we, the we, the people, and the school, like this big institution. But actually what you mean is the lowest paid person in that school, the person who's got 50 other jobs, who's got to work on the front line and stay friendly with everybody, is the one who's going to enforce this. Someone who you give no training to about vaccine communication, and someone who has almost no autonomy or authority. So you've got all these physicians, for example, saying, oh, let's tighten school vaccine mandates. Physicians who experience a great deal of autonomy and control over their workplace, trying to put more on the desks of people who have almost no autonomy in their work life and whose job really is to build good relationships with parents and not sort of challenge them when they come in with questions about vaccines in the context of enrolling kids in school. I'm interested in in sort of thinking about ethics questions about the question Devin asked, should we force people to vaccinate? Well, you know, it's easy to say, yeah, we should do that for when they go to school. But uh, I want to know what it means for the people involved, street level bureaucrats, the people at the at the bottom of the, the bureaucratic pyramid who have to enforce our laws. 
What does that look like for them and what does it look like for parents and for communities when you use government power this way against people? I'm hearing we should have a special group of elite people, probably in uniform, who enforce the requirements of vaccination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should stay as far away from that as possible. Here's, here's what I should say. It is a tragedy how quickly people respond to frustrating social phenomena with the idea of state power. I love public health, but public health in America, early 20th century public health, has very anti-liberal tendencies, right? I mean, there's, there's direct lines from it to sort of fascist forms of political life. And I'd say that with great respect for people, both in public health today and, and historically, we need to be really careful. For example, it is extremely unethical to be trying to use government power to make people vaccinate when you're not fully funding vaccination or other healthcare initiatives, when you're not supporting parents, even things as simple as helping them get to clinic, when you are not you know, cultivating trust and building relationships, especially between disadvantaged communities. Many of America's recent outbreaks have been in communities of persons who have less social power and, and are uh, disadvantaged and often oppressed. So we've seen outbreaks among Orthodox Jews last year in various places, right, including in Southeast Michigan. We saw an outbreak a few years back in immigrant Somali Muslim communities like in, in Minnesota. We've seen outbreaks among the Amish. We've seen outbreaks often in sort of these communities that, that are not well integrated and not well supported. And so there's something offensive and clearly unjust about saying, well, yeah, we need to bring the food of the government down on these people, when really what we should probably be trying first is throwing a lot of resources at outreach into communities that are not well served by our public health infrastructure. Mark, I think that's such a good point, because when you say things like these people are stupid or, you know, they don't care about anybody, when you look at those populations, it makes sense that if they don't have access to the same public health measures because, you know, they might not have insurance or for whatever reason, that is a justice issue. And maybe they're not stupid. But I think the face of this is Jenny McCarthy, people with lots and lots of privilege who are choosing not to vaccinate. And that becomes the face of people who don't want to vaccinate, when in fact, that might not be the only group of people, is what I hear you saying. Well, of, of course, right. And, and what we care about is not vaccine refusal by itself. We care about outbreaks. And so, yeah, we should be looking at what's going on in communities where we're seeing outbreaks and focusing our, our initiatives on them. And actually, there's a long history of vaccine skepticism and refusal being widespread across society in lots of different groups. But coercive government programs coming down on poor people and on immigrants and on racial minorities. So the most coercive forms of, of vaccination policy we've ever had have always been directed at those disempowered groups rather than well-off white people in this country who have traditionally refused vaccines at, at the same or higher rates than members of other groups. Mark, what are some of the big myths that people might have heard that your work or through your work that you've been able to debunk? I think the first one you mentioned was people refuse vaccine because they don't know enough. So what are some other things that you've found? Well, I want to be clear that I do the ethics stuff and I do some of the social science stuff. There's a ton of people who are dedicated social scientists working on the vaccine hesitancy refusal problem. But obviously, it's not merely information deficit. We know this in other issues. But when people disagree with medical recommendations, it's often not because they don't know the right facts. But it's because they have different values or they have sort of emotional connections to something that happened to them that in their minds at least seems relevant. So for example, a huge number of parents who refuse vaccines believe that someone in their family or their close circle had a vaccine injury, right? So this is you know the autism stuff. And, and you might say, well, okay, that's not justified, it's not true, but 
post hoc ergo propter hoc. It happened after, so it happened because of. This is a classic fallacy that I think that because you know A happened and then B happened, that A caused B, we can say all day that's a fallacy, but all of us succumb to it all the time. And frankly, if my kids got vaccinated and then I soon started noticing that they had some disorder or disease, it would be very hard to resist concluding that the vaccines had caused that. I, I admit that as someone who's very pro-vaccine, I, I don't think I could resist that. And so what are these people responding to? Well, you know, a deep trauma that affected them or people they care about, they in their minds at least associate with vaccination. And there's no reasoning out of that once you're there. That's a really difficult thing. And then also, I think lifestyle, complementary and alternative forms of medicine can serve people's needs by giving them a sense of control uh, and agency in healthcare that you often don't get if your typical visit with your physician for seven minutes. It can be a very sort of consumer facing, but also counterintuitively feeling anti-capitalist kind of way, where you can feel like a less sort of corporate big pharma dominated interaction when you're doing your, your natural health. So there's a big association between people who are committed to complementary and alternative forms of medicine and vaccine hesitancy and refusal, especially people who have these views about medications, right, and pills and, and injections. So Mark, I really want a vaccine for COVID. I also just saw that it looks like about a third of people say they wouldn't take a vaccine, or at least wouldn't want to be one of the first people to take a vaccine if it came out. That's pretty troubling because a third of people not getting a vaccine if they could would mean a huge swath of people are not being vaccinated for this virus that has caused so much death. How do we think about that? And what do you think are strategies for getting people on board? Yeah. The biggest piece of advice is one that hasn't been followed, which is politics ruins our brains. So we are tribalistic thinkers. And when you, when you start to associate particular kinds of beliefs and practices with people who wave certain kind of flag, whether you're the Democrat or Republican or something else, your religion or, or your irreligion, it messes with the way we think. Injecting political ideas into science-informed debates sort of contaminates that communication environment in both directions. So for example, among the people who are most skeptical about the COVID vaccine are people who are very pro-vaccine, but very anti-Trump. And because they associate this vaccine with Trump and with what they believe to be Trump's politicization of the CDC and perhaps corruption of the vaccine approval process through Operation Warp Speed, they have a very strong feelings about this vaccine, even in the absence of evidence that the proper procedures have not, have not been followed. And I think some of that comes vice versa as well. The leading proponents of making vaccines more mandatory, you know, making it more coercive, have all been Democrats in every statehouse across the country. And the leading proponents of making it easier to avoid getting vaccinated for your kids in every state across the country, Republicans. So this is a thoroughly politicized issue. There's no going back, at least in the near future. And we should be really wary about further politicizing immunization policy. Because as you suggest, while in politics, you maybe need 50% plus one, 270 elect electoral college votes, in vaccination, you need 80%, 85, 90, maybe even 95% of people to take that vaccine for it to, to really do the best for the community. We just have to get politics out of it. Although that might be hard, right? So <laughs> yeah, it sounds like we're in trouble. Well, what else you got? Give me another strategy. That one seems like it might be too difficult. Well, my strategy would be that in this context of diminished public trust and the erosion of institutions that used to be a kind of way to sort of generate public trust, it would be foolhardy to try and rush forward with efforts to mandate vaccines. That is going to make things so much worse. Let's work on cultivating trust. 
you know what? There's not going to be enough vaccine to go around for a long time, months, maybe even years. So it's fine, frankly. It's totally okay right now if only two-thirds of Americans will take this vaccine. There's no way two-thirds of the Americans are going to be able to get the vaccine anytime soon. Let's have a bunch of people get the vaccine. Let's have a lot of positive communication and a lot of buy-in from all kinds of communities and constituencies around this vaccine. And then can talk about if there's 5% or 10% left over, how we manage that kind of dissidence in the community and, and whether they're a problem or whether they're not. Mark, one thing that I really appreciate about your work is that you take an issue that I thought I kind of had my own opinions about, that th this is the issue, here's the answer, and here are the reasons why everyone is wrong who disagrees with me. So <laughs> I still think what that. I, what I, I still I, think I'm right. <laughs> what I like, it just creates nuance. It creates more gray areas in these issues that we you know, may have thought were pretty black and white. Thank you. I mean, one way to put the point is politics is not war. In war, we have enemies and we have opponents and we have bad guys and we have good guys, at least in the frames that we like to use for war. We can't think of politics that way. Politics is about ultimately cooperative activity aimed at ensuring the sort of potential for us to live peacefully together with some degree of cooperation. And to do that, you've got to have a more nuanced, respectful understanding of the diversity of your society. We've got to see people who disagree with us and even disagree with us about things we think are really important as people who have a dignity and a respect and honor with public policies that, that hopefully can speak to them as well as to us. And so that means often, and this, is, this gets back to the history of, of thinking about politics, it means often that politics is not ethics writ large. Now, traditionally, I mean, Plato famously, like, sorry for people who don't want to hear philosophy, but Plato famously in the Republic said politics is ethics writ large. In fact, he said, if you want to know what ethics is, you just think of, right, this is from the Republic, you think of of the ethics of the person as the ethics of the state, right? The ethics of the state is just a blown up version of ethics of the person. And that's common. I think it's very common, especially in public health circles for us to say, yeah, this is the right thing to do. So we should have the government make people do this. This is the right thing to do. We should make sure this is what the government has happened. And that's just not what politics should be. Politics is about safety, security, avoidance of fear, making cooperation possible, even though we might not get the outcomes we would choose if you made me the dictator. But dictatorship is not a stable form of peaceful politics. So when I think about vaccination, I think of it as solving a political problem about fear and safety and security. And I get worried when people think of it as an ethical problem, like making sure the parents do the right things all the time. People don't you know, do bad things. Well, people are doing bad things all the time. And that's which I don't think it's the, the role of politics to stop all that. Great, Mark. Thank you so much for being here. You gave me a lot to think about. As Tyler said, I thought I knew the right answer and you made it more complicated. To me, that's what bioethics is. That proves to me that you really are a bioethicist. Thanks, Devin. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing our theme song. For show notes and more episodes, go to bioethicsforthepeople.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I've heard the phrase that philosophy and, and ethics is just muddying the waters to give the illusion of depth. Did I succeed? I mean, I, I, I'd like to take a paycheck for doing this. Yes, you've given us the illusion of depth. Ha, ha, ha.